Funding for Here and Now Anytime comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. Hi, this is Here and Now Anytime, where we give you a little news, a little something you weren't expecting, and always a fresh, in-depth perspective on current events, arts and culture, and stories that matter. Subscribe or follow to get all our episodes out every weekday. And if you like what you hear, tell a friend about us to help spread the word. Now here's the show. Every person should have a right and the ability to have access to clean water. And it should not matter where you live or how much money you earn or how much money you got in your back pocket. Well, it does matter how much money the government's got in its back pocket. And today... It's pulling out a few billion dollars for water infrastructure. It's Wednesday, February 21st, and this is Here and Now Anytime from NPR and WBUR Boston. I'm Chris Bentley. Later on the show, we've got two stories of how abortion restrictions are rippling across society. We'll consider the Alabama Supreme Court ruling that cites the Bible in contending frozen embryos should be considered extra-uterine children. And we'll hear the story of one family in Tennessee that struggled to scrape by after they were denied an abortion for a life-threatening pregnancy. Republican lawmakers who call themselves pro-life have been banning abortion and celebrating the expectation that this will mean more children, but... What have they done to ensure that those children have the best possible future once they're here? But first, how's your drinking water? With all the headlines in recent years about lead pipes, boil water advisories, and the like, you might be forgiven for casting a skeptical eye at the tap. Well, today, America's ailing water infrastructure is getting a boost. That was Vice President Kamala Harris, we heard at the top of the show, touting nearly $6 billion in federal funds to states, territories, and tribes for projects promoting clean drinking water and reliable sewer systems. So what good will it do? We asked Darren Olson of the American Society of Civil Engineers. He spoke to Peter O'Dowd. Well, it certainly is is great news. Um, The federal government has been underinvesting in our water infrastructure uh, for decades, um, you know, back in the 1970s, 63% of the water infrastructure capital funding came from the federal government. And in 2017, that was down to 9%. So wow. um, their funding has gone down. But with the IIJA, the infrastructure bill, that has now reversed course. Yeah. Well, your group's most recent assessment from 2021 gave the country's drinking water infrastructure a grade of C-. You pointed out that there's a water main break in the U.S. every two minutes. Six billion gallons of treated wastewater are lost each day. Um, As you look around the country, where's the greatest need? Really, the the greatest need is starts in the oldest communities. Um, Those are the ones where, like here in Chicago... Even recently, they were pulling water transmission pipes out of the ground that were made of wood. Um, and so this infrastructure has been in some of these communities for for centuries um, and is in need of upgrade. Wow. Wood, it was still in use? That is correct. Yep. And is that safe? <laughs> no, that's... So that is you know, obviously part of uh, the city's program to 
upgrade uh, Chicago's water distribution system, and they were encountering um, old pipes like that, and they were they were being removed. Wow. Although I have never heard of wood pipes in a modern city, the, the issue in general is no secret. In 2014, people were getting lead poisoned from corroded water pipes in Flint, Michigan. Uh, just recently, 2022, in Jackson, Mississippi, heavy rains overwhelmed the city's main water treatment plant, and that cut off access to drinking water for 150,000 people. What kind of investment would it take to solve these problems for good? So we've estimated in a report that we did in, in 2021 that, that the gap, which is the the difference between you know the funding that's available and the need, the gap, the 10-year gap was $434 billion for our water infrastructure. So when you think about the investment and, and certainly the the IIJA um, was a great investment in our, our water infrastructure. It's really just a down payment on that. Wow. Where will the net rest of the money come from? The hope is that this begins a process of reinvigorated federal uh, investment um, in our water infrastructure. And we can now begin to to turn the tide towards going from where we are now, which is underinvesting, shifting towards strong leadership and strong investment in our water infrastructure. You know, I mentioned Flint. After that crisis, there was a lot of efforts to replace lead pipes all over the country. How much progress have we made on that front? So that's the, the lead service line issue is one that is really at the forefront of our water infrastructure needs. Um, there are 9.2 million lead service lines in the United States where water is coming from the main in your street into a home through a lead service line. Um, Here in Chicago, we have 400,000 of them. Um, And so when you think about replacing all of those, that is a tremendous amount of work that needs to be done. That's gonna need um, not just investment today or tomorrow, that's gonna take investment over decades to accomplish all of those. Mm, I know you're working on next year's water infrastructure report card as we speak. Do you have any highlights or observations that you can share with us? Well, I think we certainly have a lot of challenges. Um, you know, one of the things we haven't talked about is climate change and how that affects our water infrastructure. Yes, that's certainly, um, as we have hotter summers, that affects the ability for our reservoirs to maintain water for water supply. Um, that leads to greater rain events that then makes it difficult for our wastewater systems and our stormwater systems to keep up. So while we've seen uh, in some additional funding, which is fantastic as a down payment, we're also seeing additional challenges. Um, you know, we've got kind of those two competing interests. Darren Olson is with the American Society of Civil Engineers uh, talking to us about this investment that the Biden administration is making into the country's drinking water and wastewater systems. Darren, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Coming up next, people struggling with fertility issues in Alabama have had their medical treatment cut short by conservative judges who say frozen embryos should be considered children. After the break, Scott Tong speaks with a bioethicist about what the ruling could mean for patients across the country. Stick around. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Humana. Employees are the heartbeat of your business. That's why Humana offers group dental, vision, life, and disability plans designed to protect them. 
Exceptional service, broad networks, and modern benefits. That's the power of human care. This episode's sponsor is PwC, which offers the following message. A robot may not be coming for your job, but competitors are coming for your market share. PwC pairs the right tech with the right solutions to help you gain a competitive edge. Reimagine operations from the cloud, fuel innovation with responsible AI, and detect risks before they become headlines. Human-led and tech-powered, it's all part of the new equation from PwC. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Bluehost. Try Bluehost Cloud, the hosting plan made for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, fast load times, and 24-7 support, your sites can handle high traffic spikes. Visit Bluehost.com. Every year in this country, hundreds of thousands of patients use embryos for in vitro fertilization. Now the Alabama Supreme Court has ruled that frozen embryos are people. And today, the University of Alabama at Birmingham Health System paused IVF treatments, citing legal liability. Let's bring in Glenn Cohen. He studies medical ethics and is a law professor at Harvard. Glenn, welcome. Thank you for having me, Scott. So just to start, remind us what an embryo is and medically how it differs from a fetus. Yeah, so an embryo is essentially a fertilized egg, and it's what we refer to it at the early stages of development, typically before implantation into a woman's body, whereas a fetus is one that has been implanted and is being carried by a woman. Yeah, okay, so let's talk about this Alabama case. It has to do with a fertility clinic in Mobile, Alabama. It stores frozen embryos meant to be implanted into women at a later date. One patient got into the, the, the facility, dropped a container with embryos, destroying them. And three, com- three couples who supplied these embryos sued, saying it was wrongful death. What was the key to the ruling by the state Supreme Court? Yeah, so the question is, uh, Alabama has a statute called the Wrongful Death of a Minor Act. And the question is, what does the phrase minor child in that statute mean? And the mm. court's majority, Justice Mitchell wrote the opinion, essentially said there is no exception, as he put it, for quote-unquote extra-uterine children. And essentially the idea is that mm. the phrase minor child in the statute also includes, in his view, an unborn or recently born individual from fertilization until the age of majority. Yeah. And so, so what strikes you when you think about the significance of this ruling or, or the language used in it? Yes, let me start with the language used in it. And again, it was multiple concurring opinions by different justices, but in particular in Chief Justice Parker's concurrence, there's language that I think would strike many people as somewhat uh, theocratic, if you will. He says, for example, that the basis for his view is that the sanctity of life adopted by the people of Alabama encompasses that God made every person in his image. Each person has a value that exceeds the ability of human beings to calculate, and human life cannot be wrongfully destroyed without incurring the wrath of a holy God. So that's the kind of language that you like, you know, wake up and you say, hmm, didn't expect to see that in a judicial opinion. But throughout the opinion, Mm. there is this attempt to normalize the idea of the personhood of embryos and the idea that essentially they are, as one of the justices put it, extra uterine children. That is really Mm. out of step with, I think, about how most Americans think about embryos. But it's part of a longer-term attempt by the conservative legal movement to bring this idea of embryonic and fetal personhood into the mainstream. 
So this raises a lot of legal questions I want to put to you then. So in Alabama now, does it mean it's okay to freeze embryos? Is it okay to destroy embryos that are unused? What does it mean for doctors who provide these services as far as their legal risk now? So the opinion itself is really a construction of this uh, wrongful death statute, which is a tort statute. But I think, you know, we can read between the lines and the implications are pretty serious. And indeed, uh, the dissenting opinion by Justice Cook makes the point that the main opinion's holding will mean that the creation of frozen embryos will end in Alabama, he writes. No rational medical provider would continue to provide services for creating and maintaining frozen embryos, knowing that Mm. they must continue to maintain those embryos forever or risk the penalty of a wrongful death act claim for punitive damages. And essentially, the great irony of this case is that the people who brought this claim are people who had embryos, who cared a lot about the ability to use those embryos and lost them because they Mm -hmm. were destroyed. But the end result of this case is likely that there will be no freezing of embryos in Alabama, and that might cause Mm. many of the IVF clinics to stop doing business in Alabama altogether. So what about the implications then outside of Alabama after the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court, overturned Roe v. Wade? You co-authored a piece about the potential for this kind of question surrounding embryos. In your view, does this ruling create momentum for future rulings, future state laws that mirror this one? So, you know, the court itself is kind of recognizes in various points that this is an unusual ruling that it departs from that of sister states. But it's certainly kind of grist for the mill for people who want to bring this idea of fetal and embryonic person to the fore in legal uh, infrastructure. And the idea here is that the end game of some members of the conservative legal movement is to have a federal ban on abortion altogether. And one way to get there would be to have a ruling that fetuses and indeed embryos are persons within the 14th Amendment. So they're protected by the federal constitution such that it becomes unconstitutional to allow abortion to exist anywhere in the United States. We're a long way off from that. But decisions Mm. like this are a step in that direction. I'll just make one more point, which is to say we've had many ballot initiatives like in Mississippi in 2011 to get this idea of personhood before the voters, and they've routinely failed. And now we're seeing those same ideas filter through not by the voters, but by the judges. Yeah, through the courts. Glenn Cohn is professor at Harvard Law School, and he studies medical ethics. Professor, thanks so much. Thank you very much, Scott. Well, as we follow what happens with that case, we've got another story now of how restrictions on reproductive medicine are putting people in difficult, even impossible positions. When we return, the story of a denied abortion, the painful year that followed, and the fraying of America's social safety net. That's after the break. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Viore. Jump into a new perspective on performance apparel. Viore makes products that stand the test of time and hope to inspire others to live vibrant, healthy lives. Empowering your best life in clothing that can be worn for just about any activity from running to yoga. Visit viore.com slash NPR to receive 20% off your first purchase and enjoy free shipping on any U.S. orders over $75. Discover the versatility of Viore clothing. Support for NPR and the following message come from Betterment, an automated investing and savings app. 
CEO Sarah Levy shares Betterment's philosophy on investing. No matter the amount of money you have, it's always good to be invested. It's always good to start early. It's always good to save. And the power of being consistent in your habits is really the path to long-term wealth. Get started at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. This message comes from Schwab. It's easy to invest in ideas you believe in with Schwab Investing Themes, like online music and videos, artificial intelligence, and electric vehicles. Choose from over 40 customizable themes. More at schwab.com. Mayron Hollis nearly died giving birth, but that was only the beginning. She'd gotten pregnant in 2022, just after the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. And the state she lived in, Tennessee, had instituted one of the nation's strictest bans on abortion. The embryo had implanted in scar tissue from a previous C-section, and doctors warned Hollis that she and her fetus might not survive. But she couldn't travel out of state, for reasons we'll hear in a minute, as photographer Stacy Kranitz and reporter Kavita Surana tell it for ProPublica, what happened next is a story of pain and resilience, and an intimate portrait of a year in the life of a family struggling to get by after an abortion denied. They spoke to Scott Tong. Kavita, can I ask you to set the scene? Uh, leading up to this pregnancy, Mayron Hollis and her husband Chris had battled addiction, they were in recovery, they had financial stress, as well as a legal fight with the state for custody of Mayron's uh, other children, and then comes this pregnancy. How risky was this pregnancy for the fetus, for the mother? Yeah, doctors told me that they knew it would be unlikely for the fetus to make it to term, and that it's so rare that people continue these pregnancies because they are so dangerous that there's little data on the chances for survival for either of them. So they knew that if Mayron continued the pregnancy, the baby would definitely come early and may not survive. Mm. Tell us about the choice they had before them, whether to leave the state, whether that was logistically or even financially possible. Yeah, doctors referred um, Mayron to a hospital in Pennsylvania, but that didn't feel like a real option for her family um, because that trip would take at least four days, partly because Pennsylvania has laws that require patients to wait between the consultation and the actual procedure. Mm. Um, But Mayron and her husband, um, they uh, had been in recovery for a few, few years. Their jobs were really important to them. And they didn't want to lose them. And in addition, Marin had an open child welfare case that she was doing her best to be available for whatever the authorities needed so she could get custody of her daughter back. So she just didn't feel that traveling was a real option for her. Mm. And a lot of families are in positions like that. So she carries the pregnancy and her baby daughter, Elena, was born three months early at the end of 2022. She weighed less than two pounds. Stacy, what was it like just observing that awful, precarious moment. Well, we met Mayron right after she had given birth for the first time. And Mm. it was, you know, remarkable to see that she was lucid, functional. She didn't have a lot of options for seeing the baby because the baby was in such fragile shape. 
But oh. she had this window from her hospital room that was the window for the NICU. And she she would just look out and sort of think about her baby. Yeah. And and as the story goes, just days after Mayron was discharged from the hospital, she was arrested. And my goodness, I mean, this is like the Old Testament story of, of Job. Kavita, what was she arrested for and what did this next chapter bring? Um, Yeah, she was arrested on a felony charge. Um, She had had a child welfare case opened on her earlier in the year um, over accusations that she left her daughter in the car while she was inside a shop, and prosecutors took Mm. up the case and um, arrested her over it. And this arrest, uh, as you write it, depletes the family savings. They don't have a lot to start out with. Neither parent has paid parental leave. So the two parents, Mayrun and Chris, they go back to work even as she is recovering from surgery. How do they piece together the money to provide for the family, to provide for baby Elena? Yeah, I mean, we spent a year documenting this family's life just to look also at what kind of resources were available to them in Tennessee, which has some of the lowest rankings in the nation for maternal health, infant mortality, and child poverty measures. And we were really curious to examine, you know, since Roe fell, Republican lawmakers who call themselves pro-life have been banning abortion and celebrating the expectation that this will mean more children. But what have they done to ensure that those children who are often born into difficult circumstances have the best possible future once they're here? What does that safety mm. net look like? And here what we found was you know, two parents who were working very hard at physically demanding jobs, and everywhere they turned, finding so many challenges to access resources that could help them support this baby. Yeah, the father... Uh, installs uh, sidings, a very a difficult physical job, and Mayron, the mother, her job is uh, installing An insulator. Insulator. Just yeah. very physically tiring, demanding jobs, yeah? Yeah, I mean, we were watching them. So Mayron was leaving at between 3.30 and 4 a.m., each morning mm. when she was finally able to go back to work. And then Chris would really get the girls up, get them ready, and then he would leave at 7 a.m. And then there was a babysitter who stayed with him all day. When Marin mm. got home at like, you know, 3 or 4 p.m., um, you know, she's obviously exhausted, but then she has to sit out to clean the house, prepare dinner, bathe mm. the kids. It was very yeah. intense to watch her. It was really just remarkable resilience. Yeah. I mean, this is a picture of a family, a picture of resilience, also a picture of the American safety net, as you tell and show the story. And as far as the food stamp uh, program, their monthly income, which is not high, put them just above the eligibility limit of $39,000 a year for a family of four. So they, they, they're disqualified from those benefits. And Stacey, you know, I, I just, as you're watching this, is part of you thinking, you know, this is part of an America that a lot of us might not see. Yeah, I think so. You know, they lost their food stamps a couple days before Thanksgiving. Um, between Thanksgiving and Christmas was one of the most difficult times for the family. But what was so remarkable to me was to witness the repeated bias against Marin in the hospital mm at the bank, at the car dealership, in the courtroom, just 
constant reminders of her past while she was attempting to carve out a new future. And I think that that was one of the, the most difficult things for them is that they just weren't given any breaks. And when you say bias, this is interesting to me, um, is that the, these are people in town who know of her past, who know of her addiction past, and this just stays with her? Yeah, in the hospital, they, they do know her past. Um, you know, in the courtroom, they know her past as well. But in places mm. like um, the car dealership, they didn't, but they treated her differently because they knew that she had not enough of a credit history. Yeah. Uh, Kavitha, in the end, uh, you know, so much of the story has has this baby Elena at the center. How is she doing today, as far as you know? Well, she's definitely come a long way. She's yeah. uh, starting to learn to walk. She's hit a lot of milestones. And, you know, doctors say that babies born that early, there's still a lot of challenges over their first couple of years of their life. But um, she's mm. a happy baby and her, her family loves her. Yeah. When I was there last week, one of the main things I noticed is that not only is she starting to walk, but she's starting to become a lot more verbal and starting to, you know, say words. And it is really wonderful, especially because I know Marin's still concerned about the developmental um, deficiencies that she might encounter. Yeah. I mean, just being born so, so tiny. Kavitha, if I can kind of ask you for the final word, when you kind of step back and think about what you've learned, what comes to mind? I think just so many things to learn from this story. And I think one of the powerful things about it is that thanks to Stacy's photography, that it really immerses you in their lives. And you can see for yourself how they navigated things. And we would often sit with her while she made phone calls or go with her while she spoke to different social workers at the hospital. It was such a testament to how difficult it can be to access safety net resources in the state. I think anyone can relate, but especially for families that are working poor, living on the edge, you know, she would try mm. to devote a day to trying to track down things and get hung up on or not have the right form or get promised something, but no one followed up. And it is, it mm-hmm. is crushing to watch. And I think the family was extremely brave and vulnerable to let us in to document their lives in such an intimate time. Yeah. Kavitha Sarana is a reporter at ProPublica. We've also spoken to Stacey Kranitz, ProPublica photographer, and we will link you to the story they both worked on. The story is the year after a denied abortion on our website, hereandnow.org. Stacey, Kavitha, thank you very much. Thanks so much, Scott. Thanks for having us. That's our show. It comes from the team behind Here and Now from NPR and WBUR Boston. Today's stories were produced by Gabrielle Healy, Ashley Locke, and me, Chris Bentley. Today's editors were Todd Munt, Micaela Rodriguez, Julia Corcoran, and Kat Welch. Technical direction from Mike Moschetto and Caleb Green. Mike also wrote our theme music along with Max Liebman and me. Our digital producers are Allison Hagen and Grace Griffin, and the executive producer of Here and Now is Carlene Watson. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with you tomorrow. This message comes from NPR sponsor E-Trade from Morgan Stanley. Take control of your financial future with E-Trade. No matter what kind of investor you are, their tools and resources can help you be ready for what's next. Now when you open an account, you can get up to $1,000 with a qualifying deposit. Terms apply. 
Learn more at etrade.com slash NPR. Investing involves risks. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney LLC. Member SIPC. E-Trade is a business of Morgan Stanley. Support for NPR and the following message come from Rosetta Stone, the perfect app to achieve your language learning goals no matter how busy your schedule gets. It's designed to maximize study time with immersive 10-minute lessons and audio practice for your commute. Plus, tailor your learning plan for specific objectives like travel. Get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off and unlimited access to 25 language courses. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts.